ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, I'm Tom Gilson, and today's ID the Future brings you Michael Behe once again, the second part of his conversation with Pat Flynn on the topic, The Best Objections to Irreducible Complexity and Intelligent Design. Behe is the author of three highly original scientific works on intelligent design, plus a fourth volume compiling his responses to objections over the years. And today, courtesy of Pat Flynn's Philosophy for the People podcast, we'll hear thoughts on whether those best objections are even scientific objections, most of them. Pat Flynn speaks first as they pick up the conversation here. I think one thing that Planega, in at least his positive analysis of of your argument, uh, in addition to to what you've said as well, is sort of how this fits fits in in, in, in the greater debate. And one thing that that Planega says, and I think he's right about this, is like, hey, if you're a naturalist, it's it's like evolution's sort of the only game in town, right? If 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 the if the evolutionary story doesn't work. It seems like the explanatory power of a naturalistic paradigm just like completely plummets, right? So like this sort of has to be true for naturalism to be. And a lot of naturalists, I think, would agree with that even implicitly. I mean, that's why like Dawkins would say things like, you know, Darwin gave it, made it possible to be an intellectually satisfied atheist or stuff like mm -hmm. that. So we can see this is tightly, tightly bound. So I think what other things that your argument might do is not only can they sort of preserve uh, or even facilitate that reasonable design belief, um, but it, it also seems to me then that like to, to motivate naturalism in the face of your criticisms, I mean, what's, what's left? It seems like you would need something like a really strong problem of evil or something, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I'm just I'm saying there's like a lot of force to what you're doing in the wider scheme, even if people haven't drawn out all yeah. those implications. And we've talked about this before. I think people realize that, again, implicitly part of the reason I think you've gotten so much heat, a lot of it unfair. And of course, as Planiga says, there are some non-hysterical criticisms of Behe. Planiga <laughs> realizes a lot of this stuff is just hysterical and says <laughs> there are some non But you've got a lot of hysterical uh, squealing. Uh, yeah. And I think that is because they realize like how how precious this is to a paradigm and how yeah. threatening your yeah. project is to it. I think that's, I think that's right. What do you think about that, all that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think if you uh, evaluate the argument and if the argument is correct, then you're stuck with something like the multiverse and infinite number of, you know, you, you know, popping up by chance every now and again with, with extraordinarily implausible alternatives. And yep. so it does make a theistic view much, much, much more yep. likely. Of course, if you're into space aliens, maybe you can attribute the design to space aliens, but it's, it's, <clears throat> it's going to make Richard Dawkins feel a whole lot less comfortable again. Uh, <laughs> now that uh, he, he, um, he, he, doesn't have Darwin to make make him a, 
uh, an intellectually fulfilled uh, atheist. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Okay. Let's turn now to maybe some of the uh, objections that are definitely more in your wheelhouse. Some of the more uh, uh, scientific. Well, actually, let's go back to because I know you you've been through the uh, at least the relevant sections of arguing gods and Graham Oppie's critiques. Do you want to pick out any there of of you think uh, places where Oppie? Um, uh, doesn't quite uh, understand your project, yeah. or just or mm -hmm. just gets it wrong. And I, he seems to kind of almost give the, a, a similar type of just so story objection that we've heard many times, including from from Swami yes. Das and others yes. as well. So it, yes. I think it'd be worth treading over that territory again. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, there there are a couple of things that appear in his section on me and his his book. I will <clears throat> I will take the the, the two in turn. The first one is that, like other people, he he doesn't seem to quite understand what I mean by irreducible complexity. Excuse me. In Darwin's black box, I said you've got a system, kind of like a mousetrap, where you got a number of parts and you can't take one away or the system doesn't work. <clears throat> and I started out by saying it is a single system, a single system, meaning a system that's kind of self-contained. And a lot of people have tried to counter this objection by saying, well, you know, why don't you consider a city? Why, you know, New York City, if you shut down the subways, then the then the city would eventually, you know, stop working. And that's not correct because all of the mousetraps in New York City would continue to work just fine. They don't depend on the subway. Uh, a city is a system of systems. It's not a single system. In his book, Graham Oppie says, why, look, he said, I, I, Graham Oppie, am a single biological system. If you cut off my head, I'll die. If you take out my heart, I'll die. If you remove my intestines, I'll die. So I'm irreducibly complex. That's not right. That's not what I mean by the term, and, and I think I explained it clearly, but people kind of miss it. For example, let's, let's think about a chicken. Famously, you can cut the head off of chicken, and it will flap its wings and run around for a minute or so before it keels over. Mm -hmm. If you take the spring out of a mousetrap, it's not going to do anything. Mm -hmm. It's going to sit there. It cannot work at all. There's a complete functional collapse. Right? Exactly. And in a chicken or in Graham Oppie, you find many of the biochemical systems that I discussed in Darwin's Black Box and elsewhere. You'll have a blood clotting cascade in Graham Oppie. You'll have a, a cilium, uh, which is this complex molecular machine that I talked about. <clears throat> He can't be a single system if he has all these other systems within him that are themselves single systems. He is a composite of systems, all of which are sub are you know subsystems of the of the larger system. But he's he, it's not a single system. So by irreducibly complex, I mean things like the mousetrap, where if you take a part away, it's gone. And moreover, I emphasize in Darwin's Black Box that for discussion of living things, you got to focus at the molecular level mm -hmm. because that's where the, the business of life gets conducted. 
everything you do at a at a higher level is is the result of many 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 things going on at the molecular level so you've got to focus down there to address these problems <clears throat> okay so that's number one a second point and related point is that people try to address the problem with irreducible complexity kind of through a fuzzy theoretical scheme where it was first put forward maybe a hundred years ago by a name, man named Herman Muller, a uh, geneticist. And he says, well, you know, suppose you have some something in, in an organism, we'll call it A, and it's mm -hmm. doing some sort of job. And another thing is added to it. And it helps A do its job better. Okay. Mm -hmm. oh, okay. And then later on, a kind of starts to depend on B so that if you took B away, not only wouldn't it A work as, as well, it wouldn't work at all. And then maybe you could add something like C and they would all get to be interdependent. Mm, mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. the reasoning goes, well, maybe irreducibly complex systems could arise in this fashion. I believe Graham Oppie quotes other people or uses that same argument, which was, uh, which was put forward by a couple people. Most, the first one, I think in my case was a man named Alan Orr, who is a biologist at the University of Rochester. And <clears throat> the problem is, you know, what is A, that it's doing something, you know, but not well, what is it doing? If you're thinking of it in terms of a mousetrap, what does A correspond to? That is the part of the mousetrap that's working inefficiently. Hmm. Without its parts, the mousetrap doesn't work at all. And what is this B that's being added to it that helps it work better? People assume that if it helps it work better, why then it's part, it's adding to the mechanism. But suppose that I had a mousetrap, we'll just give that and we'll start with that. And what can make it work better? Well, suppose I had a little can of oil and I added a drop of oil to the, the spring that makes it move more easily. Is the can of oil then going to be part of the mousetrap? No, <laughs> that's not it. And people are just, I think, approaching this linguistically or, or something. And they, they can't do that. You've got to go into the you can't just analyze it at the meta level of, of words. You've got mm -hmm. to go in and show me what machine you're thinking about. Why don't you start with some of the things that I talked about in Darwin's black box, like the flagellum, right? What is, what's part a that's doing the job and what's part B or the mousetrap or, or, uh, but people avoid specifics and, uh, and I, I therefore, I, I don't think their arguments uh, work. And so you're, what you're talking about is this notion that two biological systems, say, stumble into a mutually beneficial yeah. relationship. <laughs> right. And you're saying that once we actually examine the details and plausibility of that, it just totally falls apart. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But but an, another there was a, another objection that uh, you sent me uh, an email uh, from one of your listeners who advanced that sort of argument saying that, well, 
we know that two biological systems can come together and then become mutually dependent. Well, that, that may be the case, and I have no reason to doubt that. Mm -hmm. For example, it's thought that mitochondria, which are organelles within eukaryotic cells, it's thought that they were once free-living bacteria and then mm -hmm. somehow got swallowed up by a larger cell but didn't get digested, and they kind of specialized in this uh, mitochondria specialized in energy production and and other things and now eukaryotic cells can't live without mitochondria mm -hmm. so i think that's the kind of thing that <clears throat> your correspondent was thinking about i think that's entirely possible but number one you're starting with a large cell that works you're starting with a mitochondrion that was already working and so when you get them together, you don't have anything new. And when they come to depend on each other, they're probably losing things that they used to be able to do for themselves. I, I have an analogy that I sometimes use in talks. I say that suppose you're trying to explain how a car with air conditioning first arose. And you said, okay, suppose I had a convertible, I was driving down the street and there was a room air conditioner in a, an apartment building on the second floor and it fell out and it fell into my car. Mm -hmm. And over time it kind of made connections. And therefore, and there I got a car with an air conditioner, but you started with an air conditioner, you started with a car. And uh, so you're not really uh, explaining anything. If again, if folks wanted to do that, they should, why not just use the examples that I put forward in Darwin's black box? Tell me, you know, what two things got together to make the bacterial flagellum and how they came to depend on each other and, and so on. Nobody in 25 years have, has been able to do that. And, and I think because the problem is a whole lot harder than many people appreciate. Yeah, no, that's that's a really good response. And, uh, you know, last time we actually covered uh, Jack Smart's objection as well, which is mm -hmm. kind of similar to that. Um, I don't know if we want to go over that one again now. People can listen to the it was sort of an exaptation um, type of yeah. uh, response. Um, I don't know. Is that was that worth reiterating? I feel like we've done yeah. it in three episodes. Uh, at this yeah, point, but, uh, yeah. Uh, my memory's going. So you did have to remind me of his his. Um his exact argument uh, again. Yeah, we've done that. We that was in the previous episode. So I don't yeah, I don't yeah. I don't have I don't have it handy anyways. That one I always like to give references. Jack Smarts is in uh -huh. um it's well actually I it wouldn't be that much of a pain. I'm not going to dig it up now, but it's in this book, Theism and Atheism, because John Haldane actually speaks favorably of your of your work and, and Smart takes it seriously and but he gives this sort of just so acceptation yeah, story, yeah. which you've responded to many times uh, before. But the one curious thing I want to point out here and I want to highlight is that again, they're not they're not pointing to specific scientific work that has been done. Right. And uh, you, you mentioned one of these sort of telling admissions in, in Oppie's book. Maybe you want to repeat that now about Doolittle and some of these other. I thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> right? Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, he, uh, Graham Oppie, not only reviewed my book, Darwin's Black Box, but also a uh, an article I wrote around the early 2000s where I responded to objections to the theory. And in it, I also addressed a couple of scientific arguments or arguments by scientists saying that, in fact, 
irreducibly complex biochemical systems had been produced in a couple of different experiments. And one was by a man named Russell Doolittle, who was a very prominent scientist, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, professor at the University of California, San Diego, who had himself worked on the blood clotting systems for 40 years before, before this time. And he pointed to a paper that had been published a year or so earlier where a couple of proteins in the blood clotting system had been knocked out. He said, if you knock out one, the blood clotting cascade is broken. If you knock out a second one, it works okay. And he, he said, so therefore it's not irreducibly complex. And I showed that in fact, he misread the paper that when you knock out the second protein, the blood clotting cascade uh, still doesn't work, but it gives a different suite of symptoms to the poor mice, poor mutant mice mm -hmm. that are missing these two things. Similarly, a guy named Ken Miller, who's a professor of biology at Brown University, pointed to work by another person named Barry Hall on a on a, uh, a bacterial system uh, that, that metabolizes a, a certain kind of sugar called lactose. And he, Barry Hall, knocked out one part of the system and induced the system to evolve so that it could grow nonetheless on that sugar. Mm -hmm. And... Ken Miller kind of jumped up and down and said, why, well, look, we have irreducible complexity here. But I pointed out that, well, you know, Barry, the cells would not have been able to metabolize that sugar. So Barry Hall actually supported them by including a different chemical that they wouldn't ordinarily have access to and doing a couple other things specifically because he wanted them to live and to uh, be able to develop this other system. So in other words, I, I showed that they were wrong. Mm -hmm. And Graham Oppie, the philosopher, says, okay, well, yeah, okay, maybe they were wrong. <laughs> but uh, fascinating thing is he said that, well, you know, scientists, even the best scientists don't necessarily know the best examples to support their theories. And I thought that was really an amazing thing to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it really is an amazing. It really is an amazing. Unless thing you're going to be utterly skeptical about scientific results, mm -hmm. uh, you yeah, it, I guess it's true. You know, you could have somebody who's blind, but you know, who is going to know the best? A, a, what counterexample when it comes uh, comes online is is Graham Oppie going to be the one who tells me whether you know, uh, a counterexample counts against their their uh, arguments or, or not. Yeah, yeah, right. Absolutely. And uh, that is that is quite it is quite an amazing thing to say. And but it also deep in that is the is the idea, which I think is very important, that that your project, of course, is falsifiable, right? Yeah, of course right, it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, it, right. it just hasn't been. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah, it's pretty but, like yeah. clearly falsifiable too, yeah. which I think I is mean, not. Russell yeah. Doolittle thought it was Ken Miller. They they both thought they had the you know clear examples showing I was wrong, mm -hmm. and turns out they were wrong. And so I, I pointed out that 
they seem to be having, they seem to have trouble recognizing difficulties for their own theory. Mm-hmm. And so they need, you know, us guys to help point, point them out to them. Yeah. Uh, an interesting thing in that Graham Oppie article is that towards the end, he started to impress me as a real skeptic because he says, by the way, you know, it's not necessarily the case that the goal of science is truth. And, you know, and uh, uh, which, which was surprising. He, he said that we, uh, that experiments don't necessarily aim for truth. They don't uh, want to understand really what, how reality is. And that's certainly not the way, you know, 99.9% of scientists look at science. They are right. trying to figure out how the world works. Uh, I guess if you are outside the field, maybe you don't necessarily think that way. But uh, I don't think that, you know, those kind of attitudes would win him many friends with uh, in the scientific community. Right. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, there's there's definitely a sort of uh, background of, I think, broad sort of human skepticism behind, yeah, behind that attitude. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. That's what I, I thought. So. And again, if, if that's the sort of uh, attitude someone is going to bring to your project, again, that's not specific to your project. That's a, right. that's a general yeah. skepticism that needs to be dealt elsewhere. So, I, you know, let me read one more thing from Oppie. I think it kind of summarizes the exaptation sort of thing. And maybe you'll just repeat stuff you've already said. But and mm-hmm. let me let me emphasize the reason I'm we're focusing on uh this particular philosopher is people have asked me to do so and i actually like reading uh uh, graham i think he's a smart guy i think i think he's interesting i engage with a lot of his work outside of of this context um uh yeah so so i like i like i hope this is seen as i disagree with him but i hope this is seen as 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 complimentary and he's one of those sort of non-hysterical responses as um (laughs) as as planiga says so let me just read this and then we'll get your your thoughts on it. Um, so, uh, Api, again, this is an arguing gods. People can uh, find this on uh, 213. Uh, he says, even if we grant that the bacteria flagellum is irreducibly complex, uh, it is not immediately obvious that the ancestral, the ancestral bacterial flagellum that we have hypothesized must also be irreducibly complex. If we make enough small changes to the parts of the present bacterial flagellum, it is not clear that there's any reason in principle why we should not arrive at an ancestral bacteria flagellum in which it is possible to replace two of the ancestral parts with a single earlier ancestral part without seriously damaging the function of that ancestral bacterial flagellum uh, uh, that is required to carry out uh, in the environment that it inhabits. So that's actually really reminiscent of Jack Smart's objection as yeah. well. So maybe I'm sure you, you, I know you've heard this type of objection many times. So yeah, speak to it, please. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, it is terminally fuzzy. He doesn't specify any of the parts that he's talking about. He doesn't say how, uh, it would be modified. He just said, well, you know, maybe in the past there were a bunch of different changes and, and who knows, maybe it could have worked back then. In my thinking, sometimes I think of this as the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde way of evolution that, you know, just, you know, maybe Dr. Jekyll could kind of change slowly into Mr. Hyde over an hour. You know, maybe this would bop up and that and his face would change. But if, and you're not going to say exactly what's going on, then that's not a scientific response. Additionally, in the case of the bacterial flagellum, it's a rotary motor. 
We know it's a rotary motor. We know then it needs a motor, can't be a rotary motor without one. It needs a stator, something that will stay stationary as the rotor turns. Just like when you have an outboard motor on a boat, it has to be clamped onto the boat uh, when the propeller turns. Mm -hmm. It has specific mechanical requirements for it to work. He addresses none of these questions. And it would be might be okay if a bunch of other people had shown that those didn't matter, but he doesn't reference anybody else who might have looked into it in more depth. depth. Machinery typically has pretty sharp uh, requirements, pretty sharp tolerances for the parts, for parts of a system to work. And if you're going to say that it could be built gradually, then you need to show how that could happen because many engineers will tell you that's not possible. Uh, you can't just say that, well, you know, a mousetrap, you know, sure, a mousetrap needs these parts now, but maybe in the past the parts were different and they changed by little bits and then it, it worked pretty well, but and over time got better. You know, essentially that is a long-winded way of avoiding the question, not not really addressing the question. Yeah, that's that's good. And I know that uh, you've, uh, I would encourage people to go back and listen to the exchange you had with Dr. Swamidas as well, because we got a bit uh, more in depth on, on that. I thought that was a very interesting exchange to say the least, yeah. uh, as, it, as they often yeah, are. I, yeah. I should add that the background, uh, uh, background to keep in mind and that, Oppie does not dispute. Well, uh, he wrote in 2000, what, 2009 or so, his book was around there. Uh, but it's now 2022. It's been over 25 years since my book was published, where I said that no, nobody has been able to propose a detailed way in which these complex systems could have arisen. That continues to be true a quarter century afterwards, even though a large number of scientists really hate the idea of intelligent design, as I, uh, as I argue for it, and yeah. are highly motivated to discredit it. That was Michael Behe with Pat Flynn, the second part of three, and the topic answering the best objections to irreducible complexity and intelligent design. Thanks again to Pat Flynn for permission to use this audio originally recorded on his Philosophy for the People podcast. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.